Okay. Welcome, everybody. Good afternoon. And we're going to get started with today's class. So, just a quick reminder first of all, tomorrow night we start the meditation from Sinai. So, hopefully, we'll get to see you there. So, today's class we're going to talk about the Holy of Holies. As we know in this week's Torah reading, we read about the construction of the tabernacle and its details. And the first item that's mentioned in the tabernacle that was built was the ark. The ark was placed in the Holy of Holies. And we're going to get to, into its construction, its construct, and why it was constructed that way, and what it symbolizes and what its teaching is for us in our day-to-day -day life. There was this fellow, a Hungarian Jew by the name of Benjamin Wurzberger, who during uh, World War II, unfortunately, was in the camps and lost his entire family in the Holocaust. Once while he was in the labor camp Matthausen, he was waiting to get his slice of bread there online, and the German officer in his ridiculed him and said, Ah, you Jews, all you think about is coming to Jerusalem. You'll end up in Jerusalem in a body bag. Oh, That's where you're going to be. If you're lucky in ashes, you're not going to be there. But, as life has put it, this fellow Binyamin made it through the Holocaust, survived, and ended up in the land of Israel, and he had a wonderful family in the city of Afula. Oh, God. <laughs> fifty years passed. He was fifty years old, and it was now the time to go through his pension, you know, to collect on his pension and retire. He was over the fifties, I'm saying fifty years passed since then, he was so now sixty-five, and he was ready to collect his pension. After he was now retired, he decided, you know, there was something always in his mind, ever since that German SS officer told him, you Jews always want to go to Jerusalem. He always felt there was something in his mind that he wanted in Jerusalem. And he went to the Western Wall, and he approached the people from the Western Wall organization, and he says, you know, I'm retired. I want to do something. I want to work here in the Western Wall. So he said, sure, we'll give you some odd jobs. And his job was to clean the stones, to pick up from the people that were there, the kids dropping their wrappers or whatever it was, and to clean up people and to greet people. He was a greeter, as he would call it, to make sure the place was clean. He did that for 35 years until he died at the age 92. Wow. wow. Until he did it until literally a few months before his passing. And the way he watched over the Kotel, we could say probably the Kotel watched over him, the Western world. You go into an airport, stop any person, and ask them, what's the holiest place in the world? Probably majority of the people will tell you, Jerusalem. Christians consider it the holiest place. Muslims consider it the holiest place. And Jews consider it the holiest place. So it's that one place which many people consider holy. In Judaism, we know that in the Torah, in the actual Tanakh, that means in the prophets and in the scriptures, the word Jerusalem is mentioned over 600 times. The word Zion, Zion, also the land of Israel, is mentioned another 200 times. It is probably the place, the deep place, that everybody longs for in their heart, looking forward to be returned to Jerusalem with the building of the Holy Temple. 
Even in a halacha, in Jewish law, it is brought down that if a person does not know which way is east to Davin, to pray, he should always pray towards Jerusalem. That's why we pray towards east. So if you would be the opposite side of the world, you'd be praying west. In the land of Israel, where did they pray towards? Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, they pray towards the Holy Temple. In the Holy Temple, they pray towards the Holy of Holies. So what would be the holiest place in the universe? Is the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is that one place where the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, would only go in once a year. The holiest person on the holiest place in the holiest time. So what we see from over here is that probably if you want to call the holiest place in the universe is that 10 meters by 10 meter room, which we would call the, holiest, the Holy of Holies. What was in the Holy of Holies? And that's what we talk about in this week's Torah reading was the ark. Now, what was in the ark were the tablets that were given to Moses, the broken tablets and the complete tablets. But they were both in the ark and the Holy of Holies. This holy of this ark was made, as it's described in this week's story reading, a gold box on the outside that had a little zigzag crown around it, a wooden box inserted, then a gold box inserted inside the gold box, and the wooden box. So you had three boxes, gold, wood, and gold, right? And then you had... The, um, then you had the uh, top that was put on top of it. And on the top, there were two images, which the Torah calls Kerubim, that were coming out of it. From these Kerubim, and what they are, we're going to discuss in a moment. From these Kerubim is where the Torah tells us that the voice of God emanated from to converse with Moses. Then Moses conversed to God, and when Moses heard voice, the voice of God, where did it come from? from this holy, sanctiful place, the holiest place in the universe, which then was implanted in the holy temple, the place that we all pray towards, and the place which is the most holy of all places. But what were these karubim? What were these karubim that was on top of the 630 commandments, the tablets that were there, the symbolism of the Torah, that was there, what was in there? And the commentaries tell us that we know that these, the commentaries in the Talmud say, and this is actually the opinion of Rashi, which the Krubim were the image of a little boy and a little girl facing each other. And when God was happy with the Jewish people, they were facing each other. When God wasn't happy with the Jewish people, they weren't facing each other. So there are some opinions that say that these Krubim were not necessarily faces of the Jewish children, but they were actually faces of angels. But even if so, and some say a male and a female, as we're soon going to get into the opinions. But the question is, that we ask right away, and we're going to go into this a little more, is why would the symbolism of the holiest place, where God's voice emanates from, is symbolized by a little boy and a little girl? And when we look, and we're going to explore this, especially from the Hasidic perspective, and the Kabbalistic perspective, we will have a whole new insight of what our relationship with God is, and how this energizes us to have a relationship with God even stronger than before. So just a little point that today we're also right before the new beginning of the month of Adar. This year being that it's a leap year, there are two months of Adar. Adar is known as a joyous month. So this year we have doubled Adar, doubled also of joy, 16 days of joy. And as the Rebbe would always say that 60 according to Jewish law, if so, let's say if something non-kosher falls into something kosher, if there's 60 times against it, it's as if it doesn't exist. 
The same thing is also now that we have 60 days of joy, if anything which is the opposite of joy should be coming, it will automatically diminish it that we don't have it. So we'll have absolute joy. But when we talk about it, we see that during the month of Adar, it's interesting, we will be talking about the construction of the Holy Temple, of Tabernacle that was in the desert. That means this week we're going to talk about the construction of the Tabernacle. Next week we're going to talk about the construction of the Tabernacle, but more specifically to the gold clothing and garments that the high priest wore. And then for the next two weeks after that, again we continue to talk about the construction. One is how God tells it to Moses, and then how the Jewish people actually do it in practice. But regardless, we talk about it so much, that it's so much discussed in over four weeks, five weeks in the Torah, that what's the seemingly over-fascination with the construction of the tabernacle? Usually, if God tells us how to build something, we learn how to build it, then we go on and we build it. Why does he have to go on again and again and to be able to this overindulgence, so to speak, into the construction of the tabernacle. And there must be the very fact that this tabernacle is a symbolism as God uses it as a home for God. And being that it's a home for God, God indulges in talking about His beautiful home that we're going to build. Imagine a young couple gets together and they're building the first home, or they buy the first home, and they go to get the furnishings and the painting. How much time is spent in just decorating the home? And that's all they talk about. They talk about it with their friends. They talk about it with their family. They all they talk about it over dinner. They fight about it. They're happy about it. All they talk about is their new home. That's exactly what God is telling us over the next few weeks. He's so excited about this new home that He's telling us so much about her that He's so He's so in 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 uh, in, in love with this new home that He's talking about it all alone. What is the bedroom of this new home? What's the most sacred place of this new home that God is building? Is the Holy of Holies. What's the most sacred place in the Holy of Holies? Is that Ark of the Covenant which was placed there. And in the Ark of the Covenant was those Ten Commandments that God has given the Jewish people down on Mount Sinai. So you can imagine when the Torah is telling us about this beautiful tabernacle, the place where God's divine presence rests. Not only the place where God's divine presence rests, but what is the holiest place of that divine presence, what so to speak, the antenna that from there emanates the entire divine presence is that Ark of the Covenant and the Krubim sitting on top of it. So over here we can understand that these Krubim that are mentioned, that are on top of the tabernacle, that are on top of the Ark of the Covenant, weren't just figures of imagination that somebody wanted to have, but they are actually symbolic of something deeper and a greater connection because that's where the voice of God came from and emanated from. That is the intent that the frequency was given to the entire Jewish people for generations. So what are these Kruvim? What are these figurines that were there on top of the ark? It wasn't in the ark. These were on top of the tablets. Well, so let's start analyzing it. The first time these words Kruvim are mentioned, is in the book of Genesis when God chased Adam and Eve out of the ark, uh, out of the Garden of Eden. He uses the terminology that he placed Krubim in front of the Garden of Eden not to allow Adam and Eve to re-enter or to eat from the tree of life. Over there, Rashi translates Krubim to mean angels. Maimonides, as well, uses the terminology Krubim as angels. That these are the angels that are in different places and different celestial heights. That they are the ones that escort our prayers in high. They are the ones that are there to be able to be the entourage, so to speak, of God. 
And therefore, what are these krubim, these shapes that we would give? What do people imagine them to be? Who is the only one that describes what these krubim as angels look like? So I'm sure if you recall the Aftorah from the festival of Shruis, the great prophet Hezekiel talks about seeing God's chariot. And he also uses the terminology of krubim, and he calls those krubim angels, but he says their face was like the face of an ox. Their face was like the face of a calf. And each one of the wheels, so to speak, had a different shape of a different animal. And therefore, when the Jewish people talk about krubim, so to speak, angels, or maybe, so to speak, the mediators, not, God forbid, mediators, but what they've seen in a vision of angels that are there, it's the face of an ox. And that's what someone has suggested. That's why the golden calf was in the shape of an ox or a calf as well, because it was, so to speak, they were looking at it as an idol intermediator, which, God forbid, Jews don't believe me. My Nachmanides, in fact, comes to the conclusion and says that being that the Ark of the Covenant, its job was to symbolize God's divine presence from the divine presence on high, coming down into this world and bringing the Jewish people the divine presence. Therefore, those angels were symbolic of escorting that divine presence and divine glory on this world. And therefore, he uses the terminology that these krubim were at the sign of angels. And what does it mean about angels? He says that they were the place that the whole Ark of the Covenant, its purpose and symbolic reason was to show the connectivity of that chariot, of that godly, divine glory coming down into this world. And therefore, when you talk about the wings, because it said that the Krubim had wings and the faces of the angels have wings, and that's where all these different artists put wings on angels, is because the wings symbolize, so to speak, the floating or the flying or bringing down that divine presence. So what are these Kerubim all about? What are they all about? So what we have over here is, seemingly from the uh, prophecy of Hezekiel, they, some say that it looked like an ox. Others say it looked like an eagle. What were all, some were a lion with three different wheels and each one symbolized something else. Rashi says in that Per that point, that the face of the Kruv was the face of an ox. But on the other hand, as we see, there are many interpretations to what these Kruvim are. Rabbeinu Bechayu, one of the commentators on the Torah, says that it was the face of a male and a female that these Kruvim were. And not only that, the face of the male and the female were there to show the love that God has for the Jewish people, like the male towards the female husband and wife. Even according to that, as we mentioned before, at the time when the Jewish people were, God was happy with them, they were, afraid, they were embracing, and when God wasn't, they were back to back. The Talmud tells us an interesting episode that when the Romans came into the Holy Temple and they tried to destroy the Holy Temple, they ripped the curtain open and they saw the Krubim embracing one another. Now, this wasn't the original Ark because the original Ark was hidden, but whatever this was, they saw the Krubim embracing and they said, What? Is this is what Jewish people are all about, so to speak? Is this the way they think about their creator as a husband and wife embracing? But of course, they lacked the understanding and the appreciation behind it. That they thought it's more Jewish, this, uh, looking at it only from the physical perspective. But still, the question is, what does this mean? So we have so far two interpretations of what the Kubim are. One interpretation was that it was the face of a cow, of an ox, as by the prophecy of the Ezekiel. Another interpretation it was that it is the female and female, adult male and female, 
on each side, and then there's a third interpretation. And the third interpretation is brought in the Talmud, where, as we mentioned before, this is interpretation of Rashi, which is that it was a little boy and a little girl. And the question is, why out of all the interpretations would Rashi choose the seemingly most far-fetched, if he already translated it in other places that it means an angel, but literally, why over here does he seemingly translate it to be a boy, a little boy and a little girl? The Abarbanel, which is another commentator on the Talmud, a late 16th century uh, Spanish philosopher, uh, uh, commentator, explains and says that the reason why there was a little boy and a little girl is to symbolize that the same way the little boy and the little girl don't have any sins and they're perfect, so too it symbolizes in God's perfection. And the male and the female symbolizing also those two ways of God corresponding to the world. Rabbeinu Bechaya explains, who is the one that also mentions about a boy and a girl, he also says the same way, this is trying to show the actual reflection and relationship that God has with the Jewish people. And just like a parent to a child, there is no intermediary, there is no interruption, they are absolute, so too the, just like, so too the relationship that God has with the Jewish people. But the question is, if we look at this whole idea, God telling the Jewish people to create an image on the Holy Temple, in the Holy Temple, in the holiest place, on the Ark. Think about it for a moment. Anybody making such an image outside the Holy Temple, what would that be? Idolatry. The second one of the first Ten Commandments was don't make any graven images. And over here, in the Holy Temple, in the holiest place, on top of the Ark, they're making an image of a boy and a girl. What is the message here? That God is telling the Jewish people to create this image of a boy and a girl, and where should it be placed? On top of the Torah. That means you have the Ten Commandments inside the box, and those graven image and those images of the boy and the girl, the Krubim, are on top of the box. What would be the purpose of it? So let's go take this to another angle. There's another interesting debate on how the actual construct of the tabernacle and especially the ark was done. At the end of the Torah reading where it talks about when they put all the items that they built and placed them in the holy temple, there's that they, the Torah tells us you will take then the ark, place in it the covenant, the Ten Commandments, the tablets, and then close it with that cover on top of it. Nachmanides says that the entire ark had to be placed into the Holy of Holies first, that means with its cover. Then they would lift the cover and put the tablets inside, because it says place it inside the box. And what's the box? The box is the box on the top of and, and on top. Rashi says no. First you make the box. Then you put in the Ten Commandments, because it says in the box, it doesn't say the cover. And then afterwards you place the cover once the Ten Commandments are already inside. Now you may say, what are they arguing about semantics over here? What's the difference if I put the Ten Commandments in first or if I put the Ten Tablets in afterwards? But there's something deeper to this argument. They're not just arguing about what happened. And the difference is because Nechmanides, as we mentioned, believes that the entire Ark was there to be able to draw down and to bring and to cultivate and to teach the relationship that God has with the Jewish people. And therefore... What is the ark without the cover? 
The whole cover of the ark was there symbolizing, that's what the Kurban were, symbolizing how the divine presence comes into this world. So therefore, when God says, put the box inside the ark, into, into the Holy of Holies, it can't be put in without the cover. Because what's the box without the cover? What's the symbolism of just the box? Rashi, on the other hand, says no. What Rashi is telling us over here is that the Krubim itself, that they were in a child, in the shape of a child, in the image of a child, is a completely different message than the actual tablets that were in the ark. There's one message that God's telling us with the ark, with the tablets inside. And then there's message number two, is the cover with the Krubim and the image of the children that are on top of it. What's the difference in the messages? And over here we come about it. And the question over here, if we go back to our original question, is what symbolism does the Krubim have that they were made in the shape of a child? What's its connection to the Ark and especially with the Ten Commandments? And even more so, why is it that these Krubim are so important that they're important enough that they should be placed on top of the Ark? That means what's so on top of the tablets, on top of the Ten Commandments? And when we understand this interpretation, it will give us a very unbelievable insight into our relationship that we have with God. And looking into the insight based on the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov. If you go into a, any parent's bedroom, living room, their den, the most private place in their house, what pictures do you see hanging on the wall? Generally, the pictures of their children. They're showing their private, what their, so to speak, their pride and glory is. They're showing who they cherish most. And therefore, children that they're proud of, and they're proud of their children and so on, will be that they'll put them even in their most private places. Where you ask any person, what are you carrying in your wallet? A picture of whom? They're not carrying a picture of Shmo Joe. They're carrying a picture of somebody who they feel have an intimate connection with themselves, whether it's their wife, their children, but even most are their children. The same idea is also in God's bedroom is the Holy of Holies. And that's the most holiest sanctified place in the room, in the world. What does God decide to picture, put a picture of? Little children, a boy and a girl. That means the parents, that they, he couldn't show, the, so to speak, who the parents are, because God doesn't have an image. But he wanted to show a picture of who the children are. Who are God's children? are the Jewish people. That means, when God's showing His children, He's reminding us that to God and to us, there's a deeper truth that every single one of us have to realize and appreciate and understand. That we, the Jewish people, and God are one entity. We are not just merely God's servants, God's pawns, God's ideals. We are not just people that follow through what God had wants. But we are one entity with God. In the words of the Alter Rebbe in Tanya, he uses the terminology, a Jew, a soul of a Jew, is chelek elikam imal mamish, is part and parcel of God. And how does God show that? By putting a little boy and a little girl in the Holy of Holies. There's a medrash, quoted from Elijah the prophet. And he says as follows, Once I was walking on the way, and I found an individual. And he said to me, Rabbi, there are two things that are very important in this world. 
the Torah and the Jewish people. But which one is more important? And the Jew continues to respond and says, I think the Torah is most important. Because the Torah was there even before the world was created. To which Elijah the prophet says, but God says, the Jewish people are more important. That means God has two beautiful treasures. Two beautiful items. God, and sorry, the Jewish people and the Torah. And therefore they're standing side by side. And yet God loves the Torah and He loves the Jewish people. And that love that God has is for eternity. But the question is, which one does God love more? Does He love more the Jewish people or does He love the Torah more? Is it possible to say that He even loves one more? Or which one came first? Which was a cause and effect? Did he love the Torah because of that love the Jewish people because they took the Torah? Or did he love the Jewish people and therefore he gave them the Torah? What was first? The chicken or the egg, as they say. And therefore Elijah the prophet says. And Elijah the prophet says, look at the world. Look what's going on. Or was the Torah given first and therefore God said, hey, I'm gonna, i got to find somebody that's going to keep this Torah. And therefore he made the Jewish people. Or he made the Jewish people and therefore he said, i got to find somebody that's going to enjoy it. And he gave them the Torah. So Elijah the prophet says, the nature of the human being is to say that God loves the Torah more. But what does Elijah the prophet say? What does God say? I've learned from experience that what does God love more? The Jewish people. Think about it this way, at a more practical level. Imagine a parent own a business. And then they bequest their business to their children. Is it because they love their business and therefore they're giving it to their children? Or is it because they love their children and therefore they're giving them the business? I am sure every person in the same mind would say it's not because they love their business and therefore they're giving it to their children. It's because they love their children and therefore they're requesting their, their, their business to their children. And therefore, as we think about it, the same idea. Elijah the prophet comes to the Jewish people twice a year, at two events. He's invited and he attends every single circumcision and every single Seder. Why does he attend just these two events? Why doesn't he come cold literally it's a very important day? Or by a wedding is a very important time? It's because every, almost every single Jew, majority of Jewish people do two things. Have circumcision and have a Seder night. What is Elijah the prophet saying? The love and the connection that exists within the Jew and God is something special and unique. And it's something that's there because of the Jewish people. It's not because of what they keep, it's because of who they are. The same idea we find in Jewish law. Take, for example, there's a law about a Jewish person. Where a Jewish person, let's say, converts out of Judaism, God forbid. He becomes, okay, whatever it may be. The halacha is, the Jewish law is, that a Jew is a Jew regardless of what he does. No matter what. No matter what, a Jew is a Jew. Regardless of what happens. And not only that, even if a Jew does something wrong, he's considered a Jew that did something wrong, but never does he give up his Judaism. A Jew would always be a Jew. Why is that? Because Judaism is something different than every other religion. And that is because, you know, in general in the world there are two things. There's a nationality and there's a religion. And Judaism is neither of those. What's the difference between a nationality and a religion? 
A nationality is, let's say today you want to be a French citizen, you move to France, you start talking French, and you become a French citizen. That's your nationality. The moment you leave France and come to America, you're still French? No, you're now you're American. So it can change depending on where you are. A Jew, whether he's French, American, Israeli, he's always Jewish. Nothing changes. What is a religion? A religion means that today I start practicing like this, and tomorrow I just start doing like this, and so on. So today I can be that. A Jew, it doesn't make a difference if you practice or if you don't. The moment a Jewish child is born to a Jewish mother, whether he never practiced a day in his life, the moment he's born, even before he has circumcision, is a Jewish person, just like me and you. You don't have to do anything to be a religion. You don't have to do anything to be able to be a religious person or a Jewish person. You're a Jew automatically. What is this telling us? This is symbolic by the very fact by the Kruvim. You look at the Kruvim, where God puts a picture in the most intimate, private place of the world. The place where you have the most intimate connection with God. He doesn't put an adult boy and girl. Which, what's the difference between an adult man and woman? They choose each other. And sometimes, unfortunately, leave each other. That means it's a marriage or it's a relationship that's there by choice. But God symbolizes the relationship that he has with the Jewish people with a boy and a girl. Why a boy and a girl? Because a boy and a girl symbolize a relationship that a parent has to a child that they can never sever, that can never be destroyed or disrupted. And no matter what the child or parent does, those parent and children will always be related. You can't emancipate yourself from your parents. You can't divorce your parents. You can't divorce your children regardless of what happens. And therefore, what does God do? Number one, he shows an image of a boy and girl to reveal and to show the world in my bedroom, to show the Jewish people that in my bedroom, what am I hanging? I'm hanging an image of my children, of who my children are, of the greatness of who my children are. The unique quality of who they are. A relationship that regardless of what they do and where they come and where they have they ever gone, that relationship is always there. It's not a relationship that was developed. It's not a relationship that had to be cultivated. It's an automatic, intrinsic, inherent relationship. But even more so, God takes it a step further. There are small children. Small children telling us that what does it mean, small children? that regardless of what they do, how they did it, they're my children. And when they're my children, it's what I love, it's what comes first. And over here, God's telling us what comes first. Where is the Torah, the tablets, the Ten Commandments? They're inside the ark. Where are the Jewish people? On top of the ark. To tell us that regardless of what a Jew does and how he behaves, his first priority, he must realize that he's connected to God forever and ever. That eternal relationship will be something he can never take away. This is what the God is telling every single Jew. When a Jew does something wrong, God forbid. You may think I'm a lost cause. Maybe I divorced my relationship. I'm not Jewish anymore. So what does God tell him? Remember the relationship that you have with God is above the relationship of the Torah. The first relationship is you with God. Then is the relationship with the Torah. 
And the same way you cannot separate a child from a parent, you cannot separate God from the Jewish people. And even when a child gets dirty, and even when a child is playing in the schmutz, and even if the child does something wrong, but the child is in pain, the mother goes and picks up the child, hugs the child. So too God is telling every single one of us that the essence of the Jewish person is with God. That God and the Jewish people are one essence. In fact, what is the covering of the Torah, of the ark was called in the Hebrew language kaporet. The word kaporet comes from the word kapara, which means to forgive. That the very fact that God is reminding us that where does a one give the strength? That the strength of forgiveness is beyond the strength of the Torah. Meaning from the Torah you have to follow the laws according to what you have to do and there's rules and regulations. But even more greater than the Torah is the concept of forgiveness. That if God forbid we've done something wrong, we have the ability to be able to be forgiven. And therefore the Krugan, they were considered as a cover, as in the simple interpretation that Rashi gives that this was the cover. Meaning a cover, covering over when God gets upset. To be able to cover over, to be able to appease, to be able to ask and show, yes, we are God's relationship. Mm -hmm. How is this we done? This is not that we are married to God. On the contrary, we are God's children. And because we are God's children, the same way, the same way a child is part of the parent, so too we are part of God. And because of this, if you know an interesting thing, you'll find when God talks about the description of the Jewish people, if you look through the history of the Jewish people, when is the first time that Abraham is mentioned? Abraham is mentioned only when he got 75 years old. His first few incidents when he chopped down his father's idols and when he was thrown into the furnace is not even mentioned in the Torah. Why doesn't the Torah mention about all those special things that Abraham did to risk his life to show for God? Because what the Torah is teaching us over here is that our relationship with God is not based on the choices we make is because there's an intrinsic, inherent relationship. So even at 75 years old, regardless of all the choices he's made throughout his life, that relationship that Abraham had with God was inherent. And every single one of us had that inherent relationship. The same idea we find, now we're going to read about it in this week's Torah, next week's Torah, or in two weeks, I'm sorry. When Moses saw the Jewish people sitting with the golden calf, what did Moses do? He took the Ten Commandments, the tablets, and he threw them to the floor and smashed it. Now Moses, granted the Jewish people don't deserve the Ten Commandments because since they were serving the idol, why do you have to break them? Put them away in a closet. When the time comes, he'll give it to them. Because what was Moshe teaching the Jewish people? He said the entire Torah was given to the Jewish people. The entire Torah was there just because of the Jews. Now if the Jews are not serving the Torah, then the Torah is not needed. It's because the Jewish people are the primary purpose. It's like you're saying, okay, the kids are not behaving in school, so what do we need a school for? No, the reason why we made a school is because of the children. Who's the primary? The children. And the school came afterwards. The same idea is also the Jewish people came first, and then the Torah and the Ten Commandments. So if the, if, if the Jewish people are primary, then everything else is not necessary. What we see over here is an unbelievable concept that God is teaching the Jewish people to be able to engrave within every single Jew the concept that the Kubim were standing on top of the Ten Commandments is to instill within every single one of us the most important idea is that the future of Judaism is dependent on the next generation, on educating the children, to recognize that we are children of God, 
that our connection to God is something that can never be severed. But also, yes, if you want to make sure that the Torah, the Ten Commandments, whatever in that ark, you want to make sure it stays on and perpetuates, if not for teaching the next generation, there'll be nothing that we can do. And therefore, here's what we need to remember. That while, we, while we're here in this world, we have to always remember every single day that we are part and parcel of God and whatever we do, we're inherently connected to God. But most importantly, we have to do our part to be able to take that energy and to take that wisdom and impart it into the next generation, to the boy and girl of every single home, that they should know that they also have that relationship with God that can never be severed, that will always be there. And through that, educating the future generation, we will then see the smiling face of the boy and girl that's on top of the ark, the smiling face of the countenance of God that he gives us that great divine presence into this world. We'll rebuild once again that holy temple, rebuild that holy ark, and the smiling face again, once again, on those proven with the coming of Moshiach, maybe now. So, thank you for listening. And thank you. All the best. <laughs>